Welcome to the Product Design Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Coolen, founder of UX Cabin, where we create world-class web and mobile apps. I'm excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of some of the most interesting and talented people in product design. We'll get strategic advice on how they got to where they are today and things they wish they would have known earlier in their career. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for checking out the Product Design Podcast. Today, we have Neil McLean with us. He is the Executive Director of Product Design at Evelis. Neil, it is so good to have you here, man. Thanks so much uh, for having me on, Seth. It's uh, been a challenge to get here. Uh, (laughs) I think we've gone back and forth trying to set up a time uh, with everything going on, family, work, et cetera. It's been wild, but um, glad to be on. Absolutely. Neil has been um, one of my uh, better friends over the course of the last year in the the UX community. So I am absolutely thrilled to be able to get a solid hour here to just pick Neil's brain on stuff. But yeah, why don't you start us off and and tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you live, and maybe some hobbies that you have in your in your uh, life. Yeah, for sure. Again, Neil McLean, product designer at a company called Evelis. Just real fan of product design and pushing the envelope there and working with a lot of uh, great designers over the years. And so one of the things that I love to do is obviously mentor designers and work closely with designers uh, to, again, push the envelope. So right now we're exploring a lot of stuff around AI and how that can be implemented into organizations, AI transformation, and just really, really focused on pushing the boundaries on design and seeing how far you can take certain things, how far you can lead a team, grow a team around some of these innovative ideas. Nice. And you said some hobbies too, right? Yeah. Yeah. My hobbies are all my kids. Like that's, that's my life right now. I've got three little ones and they're a lot of fun. So I, I mostly, mostly dedicated to just running after them and making sure that they're good. So I absolutely, do you guys, do you guys happen to watch Bluey in your house? Like, like we do in our house? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of uh, Miss Rachel. Whatever seems uh, somewhat educational, right? Sometimes you feel a little bad. You're like, hey, I don't want to sit you in front of a screen too much. But sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. So I think uh, I've got some, I've got them in the background right now floating around. So hopefully they don't interrupt us. But I think we have Mario is playing right now. My son's way into Mario. So his latest thing is he'll just randomly, he'll just be like, Mama Mia. That's- <laughs> <laughs> well, if they come on, well, I'll just, you know, interview the whole crew. So no worries there. <laughs> we might have to. Oh, good. But yeah, I would love to know your origin story and kind of share how you got your start in, in the design community. Because I think you have a lot of really interesting insight and, and a journey to share that will be super helpful for our listeners. Yeah, so my, my journey's been fairly non-traditional. It actually starts back when I was about 14, 15. I got into design and my entry into design and web development that and that whole world was, especially on the professional side of things, was Flash, Macromedia Flash. So just was putting together a lot of really rich experiences as a kid, really, and just pushing the boundaries. One of my 
favorite studios at that time was Too Advanced. I don't know how many people remember Too Advanced, but they were actually out of here. We're not far from where I live now. Right now I'm in Irvine and it was kind of one of those full circle things for me because I started my career in Florida, was there for 17 years, kind of just getting into design, getting into development, learning different things. And then I, I eventually ended up partnering with some other operations, a couple businesses and, and guys that I ran into through the course of, I, I think like anything, you start freelancing, right? When, especially when you're younger. I think my dad had to set up all my business accounts, but it was, it was just exploring and learning and self-teaching really is how, how the whole thing started. And then when I was 15, like I said, I was looking for clients, trying to figure out well, what's this client intake process look like? How do you get clients? How do you make money in this thing? Right. And so I was into automotive stuff. So I was going through this a magazine called DuPont Registry and I came across this client called potential client called Casborn Design. And uh, he was modifying Hummers at the time. I don't know if you remember for a period there, it's like everybody in America had an H2. I think it was before like fuel prices went to the moon and then right. you never saw one again. <laughs> it's like, how do they sell millions of those cars? And then they just disappear off the right. back. Anyway, so he had this modified one. It was like a half a million dollar truck and it was crazy. And then I went to his website and it was just like awful, right? And so I called him up and he answered the phone, Casborn himself. And he was like, hey, you know, what's going on? I said, hey, your site's not great, but your product looks awesome. Like, would you like to engage? And, you know, maybe we could do a flash site for you guys, put some really cool, rich media together. He was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And I was like, how much for something like that cost me? And I was like, well, you know, probably about $10,000, right? Of course, I'm 15 years old. And this was back in 2001 or something. Wow. <laughs> That's like, bold. Just oh randomly came up with this number that felt right, given the amount of work I thought I was going to put into it, right? And he was like, okay, 10000 that sounds pretty good. He's like, send me an invoice, we'll get started. I would. I hung up the phone and I was blown away. I'm like, I'm 15 and I just made 10K. That is First real attempt insane. at, at uh, cold sales. So uh, that just kind of kicked things off. I, I figured at that point, it was probably a pretty good industry to get into if I could pull that off at 15, so hasn't uh, failed me yet. So here we are some 20 years later, we're still at it. That's amazing. I'm interested in knowing like how at 14 or 15, you kind of had the proclivity to want to, you know, get into Flash in the first place. Yeah. So computers were something that my mom introduced to me. I was homeschooled um, through high school. So she was really instrumental in just getting me exposed to technology and computers early and i wasn't allowed to play a lot of video games so we didn't have like video game consoles or anything like that but rich media like video and presentations and things like that were really interesting to me and just i wanted to i wanted to create and then music was really important to me as well i was classically trained on the piano and so i would bring all of that into like orchestral arrangements and things that i would put together and record and so then mapping like experience to music and creating that entire world within Flash was just like a perfect match. And so I was doing quite a bit of it and just kind of grew into it. And I was like, wow, like people need this professionally as a service. Like, let me see what I can, what I can offer folks. And that's where that whole thing kind of started. That's fascinating. Looking back, do you feel like homeschooling helped you be able to put more time into 
learning these things and doing these things than than you might have had if you were in a more traditional school setting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being able to focus on that time when I was most creative, whether it was like late at night or during the school day when I would normally be doing, you know, these stuck in my seat, you know, somewhere else, I think gave me the opportunity to really explore that. And then from a business perspective, you know, as a kid, if you're trying to run a business at 15 and start out, it's hard to do that if you have classes to be at and you can't take calls at certain times. I don't know to this day if that client realizes how young I was when we closed that deal. I was signing contracts, sending them contracts, signing contracts that had like no legal holding because <laughs> I was only 15. But but I'd get on the phone and I'd put on my my deepest voice. Yeah, like let's do business. Like it was wild. I met I met up with the the investor who founded the whole thing or paid for the whole thing rather a little bit later. And he was, he was like, how old are you? I was like, don't worry about that. Like, yeah. I've been working on this for five years. I'm only 20. <laughs> so. That's amazing. I, well, I, yeah, I think one lesson for sure is like to take that you can take away from that is just the, the boldness there. Right. You don't get it. You don't get what you don't ask for. That's it. And you know, yeah, regardless of what your skill set is or whatever, it's like you kind of need both the skill set and you need the boldness to be able to to make the ask or put yourself out there. And, and those are two very, very different skill sets. Yeah, it's funny. Over the years, I think in some ways I've become more conservative. You know, when you're when you're 15 and you're just stepping out into the world of tech and it's a new thing at the time, it really was. I don't even know if UX design was a term at the time when I got started, right? Like, I feel like, the sky was the limit. And I used to have all these ideas of being a millionaire by the time I was 20 and it all made sense. Right. And over the years, you know, life kind of teaches you like, well, you know, maybe it's not always that easy, but, uh, I have to remind myself of that kid sometimes. And it's like, you can ask for more, you can push the boundaries, right. You can, you can kind of define your own world because it's absolutely yeah. the truth. It's just, I, I talked to a friend about some stuff around, tech and finance and whatnot. I'm like, ultimately, it's just all a game, you know, and how well you play it is up to you. And you're the only limiting factor in a lot of ways. So yeah, definitely believe Totally. That. When I think like self-awareness is super necessary for like all areas of life, but sometimes like self-awareness can prohibit you from trying to get that promotion or apply for that job or put yourself out there because you're so incredibly self-aware that you don't feel like you know everything about what you're trying to do or everything about, you know, the project you're trying to bid on or you think it's too crazy so you talk yourself down from it and yeah, and you don't do it, right? So you need a little bit of like um you know, kind of like being your biggest fan or your biggest cheerleader thinking you can, you know, you can go out and do these things versus being like so utterly self-aware that you are like, oh no, they're gonna, you know, uh, ask me about this one thing I don't know, or they're gonna pick apart this. It's like I don't know, just just do it. What what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. Like one of the fascinating things I've learned over the years is that nobody knows what they're doing, and so <laughs> true, all that kid who's faking it till they make it right. And there's so many cases where I've even seen folks come out of college who should have training in the industry they're going into, right? Like that's kind of the, 
standard of success is like, have you gone to college for this? And now, you know, and a lot of times because they don't have the real world experience, you're just blown away. I know I've been blown away by how out of touch some of our training models can be against what we actually have to deliver on, on a day-to-day basis. So it's like, everybody's learning on the job, you know, and the faster you can learn, adapt and continue to push, push boundaries and explore, especially when you're exploring new things, right? Like one of the fascinating things around AI, which I'm exploring right now is nobody knows how to deploy it or how to use it or what the boundaries are for when you should or when you shouldn't. And we're all making these things up as we go along and creating that world. And so it's absolutely the case. Like, you know, I think people would be surprised how much they can get away with if they have enough faith in themselves and belief in themselves and they just have a good model for learning and engaging in new material. You know, you could really, you could really go pretty far with not a lot of formal education on something. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's a good case to be made that I think apprenticeships are going to probably start coming back in, in greater form, right? Where it's like, if you just take any, any random UX person in a company and it's like, would you rather this person go get a four-year degree in like human interaction design and then come to you? Or would you rather like train them for a year and then, you know, have them know all your processes, all the, all the things that you want to do in, in the way you do it. I mean, personally, it seems pretty advantageous if you, you know, <laughs> for both parties, it seems like interests are, are aligned. If you can say, hey, I'll pay you a, you know, a smaller wage to come here and kind of learn and do things and intern and apprentice under us. And then, you know, in less time, you could probably get like gainfully employed through this, through this model. But yeah, I don't know what the future holds for that, but it's 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 interesting to see how the landscape of education for our field is changing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've taken folks from fresh out of college to they've been doing this for a while to I've never formally been educated as a designer all the way through to senior, right? So, you know, any any almost any experience level you can think of all the way through to mentoring them through senior level titling. And in every scenario, it's, it's just been fascinating how little it matters where they've come from. You know, some people have a knack for it, some don't so much, but if you're willing to put the hard work in, anybody can achieve it. That's, that's something I've learned as well. So it's, it's a fun space because the barrier to entry is so low. It's just for me, how much determination do you have? How much do you want it? Totally. Yeah. And I think it's like, if this is something where you can, you know, just lose yourself in it for hours on end, like it's energizing to you. You're always interested in trying to copy this, this design or this approach. And it's not like work to you. You're going to get, you're going to get much better at it. You're going to get really good at it and your skills are going to grow. I think. Um, you know, to your point, like you can, it's not rocket science, right? So it's like any, anyone can learn this given the, you know, right environment and time and, and all those things. But if, you know, if you're kind of evaluating if this is for you or not, it's like, if it feels like drudgery to you to kind of do these things, you know, maybe it's not the best fit. Like maybe you want to be more, you know, 
like a developer or a project manager or, you know, some other, you know, orbiting sphere around this and, you know, just trying to figure out what aspect of product design or UX energizes you, right? So it's like, maybe it's research, maybe it's design, maybe it's design systems, but just finding that thing that energizes you where you can get lost in it for, for hours on end. 100%. It's so, it's so varied, the skill sets that are required to properly build a product and design a product these days, that even if you don't consider yourself a proper artist or have artistic ability, which I wouldn't say that my artistic ability is my strongest talent that I'm bringing to the table, there's still opportunity. There's so much opportunity to work with teams, grow teams, lead teams, if leadership's your thing. Obviously, like you said, you can pivot into the development side or the product side very easily. And having a background in design is is guaranteed to make you a better dev, especially if it's front end. I mean, it's guaranteed to make you a better product person. Yep. You know, being able to master flows and understanding how these things come together, what's the foundation for these projects, being able to explain and define your product requirements as a designer has come in handy many times that I've been working with. Pro- you know, I talk about product managers a bit because I pivoted into product management for several years myself. And I find there's two types. There's your product owners who are very visionary. And then there's your product owners who are very tactical, like we're here to get this done, right? And when you work with a visionary product owner, it's very inspiring, but often you don't have the tools you need to get the job done necessarily. The execution piece might not be there so much. And so being a product designer in that environment who has an interest in product requirements and the business needs and being able to tackle that has been invaluable because you pair well with those types of visionary product product folks. So yeah, I, I would say no matter what the skill set, there's always opportunity if, if you just explore it. Awesome. Yeah. So one thing I always like to ask when people come on is like just different highs and lows of their career. Some people got that one job they thought would be the best thing and make them happy. And, you know, they get in and, and find out it's not as rosy as it looked from the outside or, you know, a low leading to another high. Curious over your career, what have been some highs and lows that you can remember? Yeah, I would. I can pretty clearly define those. I think it's all centered around mentorship. That's why mentorship is so important to me these days. Highs have been absolutely my ability to work with folks and mentor them and then see them move on to new highs for their for themselves. One of my mentees is a lead designer over at Twitch right now and working with him from college all the way through to him now working at a top tech company and being able to see him flourish at that level of the game has been easily one of the biggest highs of my career. And that goes for several folks that I've worked with, giving them their first jobs, for example, and then you know, they they move on or they go on to the thing that they're really passionate about. And I love to see that. And Lowe's, I think, have, have been tied to mentorship as well, or running into folks who don't understand mentorship, right? And there's nothing like having a boss who doesn't kind of get the fact that in a lot of cases, they're there to mentor and to help everybody that they're working with grow and learn and go to the next level. And so... You know, there's been a there's been a couple scenarios where I've worked with folks who who just kind of didn't understand their role in leading the team, and that's been that's been a challenge. But I've learned so much from those experiences as well, and how to 
manage my own teams better when when I have that opportunity. And thankfully, I've been given that opportunity several times now. So, so you're talking like, you know, not not giving you the tools to mentor people, or not giving you the mentorship that you needed in that in that specific time. The, yeah, definitely not giving the mentorship I needed early on. I think it's tough when people don't understand how important that is to the job of leadership, yeah. right? So, you know, you're, I, I remember this one first gig I was working, I think it was contract to hire, was supposed to be three months, turned into six months. Um, and then there was just this weird thing around, I needed to use Photoshop, but then they weren't going to buy me Photoshop. So I had to like buy the entire suite with my small salary and like figure out how to use it early on. And it was just, it was just a really funky kind of situation where one of the things I do and I preach pretty religiously these days is my job as a leader is to empower my team and to give them the tools that they need to be successful so that they can do their best work. And it, I call it servant leadership, but really to me, there's no other way to lead a team successfully. If, if you're not willing to make sure that folks have what they need to get the job done, like that's, it just seems like a basic requirement. Yeah. You're hurting yourself at that point. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You're making it harder for the people who you've hired to do their job. I don't, I don't understand why anyone would do that, but we see it every day. There's a lot of folks who kind of get in the way of their teams you know, micromanage or create roadblocks, don't empower, don't provide the tools necessary, right? Absolutely. We've been talking about kind of the this leadership model, building a team. You know, you you lead a team, you've led teams in the past and would really like to just, you know, pick your brain on just different strategies around building a UX team and ma- maintaining a, a good product design and UX team. So, you know, when you're thinking about people that you're trying to hire, what are certain qualities and, you know, attributes that you look for in people to bring on to your team? Yeah, I would say probably the biggest thing is just curiosity. You know, I, I want folks who are interested in learning and, and have a unique way of going about that because I've found in almost every role that your ability to dive in and to understand what we're tackling, the projects, you know, how to learn new tooling that's coming out, right? Like this past couple of weeks, I've been encouraging the team to play with Framer and also Figma to Webflow plugins, et cetera. Because what's happening on my team right now is we have front-end developers who are building out marketing pages and stuff in, in Framer or in Webflow. And our handoff could be a lot better if my designers understood the complete process of like, this is how you create a design. This is how you use stacks and framers. This is how you use auto layout in Figma, right? And then how that translates over to Webflow or to Framer as a final output. Sure. And I'm encouraging them to do it for multiple reasons. One of the reasons, which I, I tell all designers to be a little selfish in this, but I think you should constantly keep your portfolio updated. And one of the best platforms right now for creating great portfolio and doing it pretty easily all by yourself is Framer, right? It's just it's just really clean. You can design like you would in Figma and then just translates it right to a website. So the ability to get out of the box that we often put ourselves in, right? Like, oh, I'm here to move pixels around for this UI. Like, that's what I do. Like, I... What if the job at one point requires you to, and fascinating topic, obviously, is AI. 
Another fascinating topic that I'm pushing folks to look into on my team is the world of spatial computing, right? Which Apple so eloquently introduced this past week. So what happens when your medium changes? What happens when the tools change? Are you going to be the designer who's complaining about all those things? Or are you going to be the designer who's at the cusp of technology and doing your best to stay up to date? Yeah. And so I look for signs that a person is curious as one of the, as one of the primary things when I'm trying to make that decision. Yeah. How do you like either gauge curiosity or conversely gauge, you know, propensity for, for, you know, curiosity and, and progressiveness versus, you know, wanting to be more in your known space and not move out from that? Yeah, I found it's fairly simple. It's literally just my own curiosity expressed in those initial sessions with a new designer, right? So I'm asking them questions about AI and what do they think about, you know, Apple's new product and spatial computing and how that could impact their role in the future. And so when you tease with a few of those questions, like, hey, how are you using ChatGPT in your day-to-day as a designer? Or have you thought about using it? What are some interesting examples from MidJourney that you might be able to share, like, You'll, you'll see a spark yep. in folks who are particularly curious and be like, oh yeah, like, no, Midjourney's crazy. I've been playing with this and I've heard about that. And, you know, here's a couple of tweets that I've saved or bookmarked on the subject. Like that to me is probably the simplest way sure. to just check for that, right? If folks are in the space and they have no tangible information that they can share or, you know, in, in the peripheral yep. things that are peripheral to actual product design, then it's a clear sign that they're really not that curious and they're just there to do their job and go home, you know? Yeah. Which is, which is fine. And sometimes you need that on the team, but most times I prefer the curious. I think you might be slightly unique in, in this, what you're looking for as a leader. Cause like, yeah, I see a bunch of just like random things where like, you know, leaders or whoever are complaining of like, I just had an interview with this guy. And during the interview, he like pulled up chat GPT and, you know, to help with like his coding challenge. And it's like, like, I I don't know what the bounds of this, you know, agreement are, but like to one degree, it's like, this is all about asking the right question, whether it's design or development or whatever. It's like, do you know how to Google the right thing to find the right resource that that gets your trail of thought going in the right direction of what pattern you should use or what type of interaction or like rarely are we ever going to come up with something that is brand new you know inspiration or brand new pattern that no one's ever thought of everyone's reusing everyone else's ideas or inspiration or thoughts from ideas to buttons to forms to flows right so if we can ask the right questions, we can get the the right answers. So I think like probably what you and I think when we we think of that is like, oh, well, this person's not just limiting themselves to what's in their brain, right? It's it's kind of like everyone uses Google, you know, to to look up and find things. And, and this is just, I think, the next permutation of like how to effectively use this in your job. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're if you're asking me, would that be a turnoff? 
to see somebody kind of exploring those things or pulling up ChatGPT in an interview, I'd be I'd be more excited to see that than anything, right? Like that that would be the sort of thing that'd be like, okay, like this person gets it. This person understands that technology is here as a tool that we have the opportunity to leverage. And I love to see leverage in, you know, I love to see it in finance. I love to see it in, in work and design and anybody who understands things like delegation for leverage, technology leverage, that that's just fascinating because I see somebody who can multiply their output exponentially if they truly understand that that's a, that's a secret of the universe almost. Right. So yeah, I mean, AI is fascinating for that reason. I saw this hilarious tweet thread like years ago and it was um, this, this company and they're like found out today that our, you know, our junior designer that we hired was outsourcing all of his work for the last six months and, you know, having other people complete his work. And they're like, obviously we had to fire him because this goes against our terms. And like a number of the comments and it was like, no, you should have promoted him to creative director because he's delegating yeah, and getting yeah, everything yeah. done. And it's like, that's <laughs> just precisely, you know, put him where he needs to be. Right. He's a, he's a good delegator precisely. and, and uh, yeah, yeah. can get things done. Right. Maybe he doesn't know how to do it. So he just had someone else do it. Right. That's great. It's a great skill. <laughs> that's awesome. They would uh, definitely be getting a promotion in my book. <laughs> I tell my entire team, I'm training you all to take my job because if you don't know how to do my job, then I can never do the next job, right? So it's this idea of like your entire organization should be constantly training and upscaling people from a, from a talent perspective to move to the next level, right? Because once you get those skills, once you understand your boss's job as good as he does, you know, and plus it, it just creates a good environment where people are capable, right? And they feel empowered, you know? And and I, I think in a lot of rooms, people get defensive and it's like, well, you know, I don't want you encroaching on this or they get territorial. And I found that if that's the culture, it leads to the death of the business in a lot of cases um, totally. versus if the culture is very much we can only scale and grow as fast as everybody can learn to do the job above them and deliver on that and then delegate their tasks on to the next, right? So scale is something I'm fascinated by because there's a reason why some companies remain smaller and others grow to be billion-dollar companies. And a lot of it has to do with how well leadership understands scale and is able to teach that to the people who are early in the business. That's fascinating. I think another great question is like, you know, you think of just design teams across the board. It's always interesting to see how big a design team is, right? Some design teams, it's like a humongous company with a gigantic app and they have like three designers and UXers, right? And then other times it's like, oh, wow, this, you know, this company has a team of 15. Like how, like, how, how do you gauge the size of like the appropriate size for what a UX team should be for any given product or initiative? Yeah, I think I care a lot about people. That's probably the way I'd start to answer that question. And so I constantly tracking for burnout or signs of burnout. And you want to, my rule of thumb is if you're spending more than 50% of your day which is about four hours out of an eight-hour day, 
actively in the work of like, I'm grinding away at these pixels. So a lot of people might not agree with me on this, but um, if you're spending more than half your day, like actively mentally engaged on that visual design process, then you are tapped out. You're, it's time to add another designer. So I, you know, I, there are times when it requires a designer to run at 80, 100, 120% capacity, right? But those times should be a couple times a year for pushes for some big delivery. Fine. We can, we can push everybody that hard. But most of the time, I want people to balance their work day with not only learning and exploring and pushing the boundaries of what they're capable of, which may mean that they need some time to, you know, read a few articles or just process something in a more creative way. Like maybe they need to get out of the office and go into nature or get out of the office and go to an art museum. Those are just some really, you know, off the top of the head ideas, but I would rather them do that on my time and be completely whole as a creative than burn themselves out like they're just some robot in a in a you know machine factory as it were. So I think I'm constantly monitoring and I have a really good sense for how much is workload are we dealing with. My designers have always been encouraged to be vocal when they feel like they're doing a little bit more than they're comfortable with. And then I'll swap people in, swap people out based on how how that's how that's yeah. feeling. Or we'll add people to the team, right? So I think it also can kind of be in a person by person basis, like what what energizes 100%. or ga- engages you, right? Like mm-hmm. some people just go at a clip that's just, you know, kind of like the the Elon Musk work ethic where they're not happy if they're not working 10 hours a day, right? Because they they love this corner of whatever they have. Yeah. And then those same people, you know, you put them in a in a slightly different role doing just say research analysis or whatever. And sure. they might hate it. It, you know, two hours of that might drain their whole reserves yes. for the next two days, yes. right? So, you know, part of that is like you said, kind of being sensitive to like is this project that we're working on especially difficult for whatever reason? Are you mm-hmm. not in the right role that you can feel that you're thriving? And I think, you know, you can you can also gain and lose, you know, energy from the people around you. Maybe you're super pumped to work with the people on your team because they're great. Or maybe there's one person who's an energy suck and they just drain yeah. everyone else. So it's like all of these little levers yeah. and things that you're evaluating as a leader to, you know, make the appropriate decision. Yeah, it's, it's very variable. And it, for what I try to explain to folks is it's seasonal, right? So like this period in your life, you may be young and hungry and you may be willing to do 10, 12 hours of work. And I've seen those same people burn out a couple of years in and they don't want to touch design at all. And so what I tell folks is a career is a marathon. A lot of folks, especially younger folks that I tend to try to hire and work with, don't understand that they have 30, 40 more years of this, right? <laughs> Perfect. When I'm giving you, <laughs> it gets heavy when you really think about it. When I'm giving you an opportunity, this is your first job ever. I want to set a baseline for you that this is a marathon. And I don't want folks on my team ever thinking that it's okay to be overworked by an organization or burn themselves out just because they even have a passion for it. Like one of my mentees 
he'll be very, very passionate about things, like too passionate. And you're like, wow, this is great. Like, let's leverage this all we can. And then next thing you know, he doesn't want to touch it, right? It's like, no, 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 I'm good. And and that to me doesn't, that's not how you build productive teams. That's not how you build long-term sustainability within an organization. And another thing I found is just that from a pricing model perspective, whether it's agency or within budgets within an organization, if you're not budgeting so that your team can hopefully do their best work and be comfortable doing it, then there's levers that need to be pulled on the on the intake side, right? Like, let's charge this client more so that our team can do this more comfortably yep. is kind of the way I tend to think about it. I, I would hate to run an org or be part of a, a team where they're looking to me to guide that cadence and I'm just maxing everybody out and, you know, the team's overclocked and about to about to fizzle and burn out any minute like that's i've been on teams like that in the past and i've i've understood the longevity is is the real goal what you'll also find i think is when you burn folks out they leave so you do all this investment work to get them up to speed to mentor to train especially when you're working with newer designers like i tend to and then those folks are gone you know and you wasted how many cycles of really precious senior time and Right. And mentorship time on folks who aren't willing to stay long enough for you to recoup that investment. So have you ever faced burnout? Yeah, absolutely. The first three years I worked in official capacity as a creative director. I was running a team of about 20, didn't have a ton of training leading into that. It was kind of like a quasi title. Stepped into it, did a great job. I've been told by by folks at long since I've left that that was probably some of the best work that they've seen, even though at the time it was really stressful for everybody involved. And it led to me kind of questioning like, okay, design's cool, but is it, is it what I want to do the rest of my life? Right. And that's where, when I got the opportunity to move into product management, I definitely took that opportunity and explored product management and some team leadership opportunities I really fell in love with the mentorship piece. I fell in love with stuff that was adjacent to design. And then I burned out on that, right? <laughs> so so start, what, what I found though, and this is, this is a tip for anybody listening, but startups are hard. It, you know, for a lot of folks just coming into career, it's on, you know, startups will sometimes give you the best titling and the best opportunities out of the gate. But you shouldn't stay there longer than you need to. In both of those cases, I was at those companies for three plus years, and I should have really only been there for about a year and moved on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in one case, what was a pretty good situation turned into kind of this toxic, like, product failure slash organizational, you know, misfit and failure. And uh, there's just not a lot you can do when your CEO decides to take things a certain way and you don't have any say in the direction that we're going, right? So at the end of the day, I think people need to respect themselves enough to move on when they get a sense that it's not a good fit and not allow burnout to turn into something that impacts yourself, your family, your career, et cetera. Totally. What do you think is like, if you find yourself burnt out, what's the best thing for you to do? Take a vacation, reorient yourself somehow, not touch work for, you know, for a week, what's yeah, what? yeah. In the right works, I think they'll give you 
enough time to explore what that means. I think most orgs aren't the right orgs <laughs> and you'll find that it's better to just leave, you know, just a change of pace, a change of scenery is often what you need. I've, I've had many scenarios where I'm like, oh, like maybe it's, you know, maybe it's me or maybe it's something. And then I leave and I go somewhere else and I'm celebrated as a designer. I'm celebrated as a product person. And it's like night and day. It's like, wow, like why would, why didn't I do this two years ago? Right. And so I think at the end of the day, hop on some remote job sites and find something else and move on. <laughs> sure. That's, sure. That's how you handle burnout, in my opinion. Got it. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about kind of team size, identifying the right type of hire, but like, I guess then from like the management side or the leadership side, Mm -hmm. how do you, you know, determine if the team is being successful, if ever, if people are being productive, getting, getting, moving the product forward in the right way, how do you, how do you measure the success of a, a UX team? I think it's tangible and intangible. There's obviously qual and quant answers to that. Ultimately, again, for me, it always comes back to the people. So are folks happy? Am I hearing a lot of complaints? Do I feel like people are drifting? Every every leader knows whether his people are drifting or not. You know, are people skipping one-on-ones? Are the one-on-ones kind of getting stale? You know, are you as a leader skipping one-on-ones? Like all of those things I think are signs of like whether or not your team is healthy or not. And then things ebb and flow. So sometimes you can't beat yourself too up, up too much about it. You have to just kind of say, we're just in a lull right now and that's okay. But that has to be communicated because oftentimes your people don't understand that. So they get, I've seen this where, and I've been in the position where I, you know, you get, you kind of get really nervous because it's like, what's going on? Is there enough work? Is there enough? Are they about to like lay off half the company? I dealt with a lot of layoffs at this one startup and it was always that super awkward, like, well, what's going on? You know, know, do we have enough money? So it's, it's something where I think you can sense it. You can sense the health of the team. And the number one thing that I've found that's critical is just communicating through it. People feel so much more comfortable and they're willing to keep putting their best effort in, which is often critical in tough times for a business, especially when you communicate and when you're just open and you say, Hey, look, this is what we're facing. This is how it's working. This is what is working. This is what isn't working. People appreciate it and they, and they rise to the challenge, but that's, totally. that's what I've found from a health perspective. Yeah. Do you, from a individual performance level, right? Like, yeah. How do you take someone who, you know, might not be performing the way that you mm-hmm. want them to on the team to get them, you know, leveled up, whether that's, you know, soft skills or hard skills. How do you yep. typically go about that? Yeah, I think it's mostly just understanding what their drivers are as a human, right? My my principles of on leadership management design is all very human centered. So I'm constantly I'm constantly trying to understand what makes someone motivated or not motivated. And then I'm just as honest and transparent as possible about, you know, if I, if I really think that design might not be a fit for them or something like that, and that's pretty rare scenario to run into, then I'm just encouraging them to look into other opportunities adjacent to design. Cause I think you could be a pretty not great 
UI designer, but you might be a great UX designer, right? You might not be a great UX designer, but you might be a great, like, like we talked about earlier, product owner. Product may not be your thing, but maybe research is, right? And so because there's so much overlap between all of the roles, then I'm usually just trying to throw opportunities and tasks out that allow them to explore some of those things. And then a lot of encouragement when they find that there's something that they, they're they passionate about or that I see them particularly having an aptitude for. Yeah, I think one thing I'm trying to gauge is like, does this person care, right? About them, mm-hmm. about themselves, their own betterment. Right. And, you know, obviously right, the right. job, right? Because like, yeah, sometimes it always reveals itself, right? Where if someone doesn't care and then you're like, yeah. Hey, let's figure out like, is there something going on, you know, personally or professionally, or like, let's, you know, get all those basis covers. Do you have everything you need to be successful? Yeah. And then yeah. kind of these stages, right? Cause like, I think old school would jump to the fact of like poor performance means you don't care and, you know, three strikes and you're out. And I think good leadership kind of covers all of the basis of, am I doing everything to set up this person for success? And Absolutely. is there everything, you know, in their life or, or, you know, do we need to flex a little bit? Do we need to offer this person more support or it's like, or at the end of the day, like, do they just not care? Right. Cause that's, that's, you know, that happens. It's, you know, there's humans there are a million different reasons, but that's kind of like the core thing I'm trying to get at is like, is this person just like, skipping meetings for you know no reason like are they reliable can we like there's there's usually easy fixes for a lot of these things and if they can't be fixed by you it's like i can only do so much right so it's kind of figuring out when they're going to meet halfway if they can meet halfway right yeah i think you go through those cycles and then you realize some folks just aren't interested and i think that's when you encourage them to find an opportunity elsewhere where they might be interested. I think more more folks would be better served by having that conversation as early as possible when they recognize totally. that somebody might be like that. And then giving them, hey, but you've got three months with me that will work on things. In that time, I'm going to encourage you to update your portfolio. I'm going to encourage you to, and feel free to do that on company time if you need to, but like update your portfolio, make sure you have your ducks in a row. I want you to be able to go out and be successful somewhere else if it is not here. Totally. And let people know that it's okay to not be great at a job here. Yeah. They may be fantastic somewhere else, but they need to find that. And and I would rather be the person who empowered them to find that and they go find that elsewhere feeling empowered rather than feeling like, wow, that ended really sour and badly. And I don't know if I should be doing this. Totally. So, that's kind of how I, I've operated under a couple circumstances like that. It's always that encouraging, like, hey, look, this may not be the best fit for you because of the team size or the structure of the projects we're working yep. on, or maybe you're just not passionate about what we're tackling. And that's okay. I want you to know that I've seen that before. I know what that looks like. And I want you to feel empowered to go and find your best fit somewhere else if that's where we're headed. Totally. And I think all of these things kind of, that that we've been talking about in that realm it's like oh, there's almost this old school thought of like 
you have to be at a company for 40 years because that's kind of like what previous generations did. And it's like, everyone's a family and you just stay here. It's like, that is not how the company is going to treat you. And that is not how you should treat the company in terms of your expectations, right? It's transactional and you you should treat it as such. You should not expect to be you know, at in tech at somewhere for 40 years, if you're at some place for like 10 years, you're, you know, a dinosaur, right? So I think just these expectations of like, it is okay to move on to a different fit if it's not the right for you. It is okay to take another opportunity if it will better you. And you owe, you know, really nothing more than what the services that you were provided to do for the company for the time that they were paying you to do. So I know that's definitely a more, you know, a a conversation between the head and the heart that's, that can be difficult, but it's the reality of how we should be thinking about these things in, in, in modern day. It's true. And I've, I've really sacrificed in the past for organizations because I believed in the mission and the vision and to come out on the back of some of those opportunities and realize that I really just kind of gave too much time with family, et cetera, sacrifice things that are really core values. I wish more leadership handled things like you're talking about and like I tend to tell my teams these days, which is there's a clear line of delineation between the core things that matter and your and your job. And don't cross those two because then things get very murky and you can end up very damaged when things go south. America and American business, it's very capitalistic thought process. There's nothing wrong with walking away from something that doesn't serve you, even if at one point you felt very strongly about a mission, right? And just remember that oftentimes those companies that you're most passionate about and seem to have the best and most flowery speeches will lay you off in a heartbeat. <laughs> if, you know, if, if those quarterly earnings come in slightly low, <laughs> so. At the end of the day, like you have to, you have to do what's best for you and your family above all. Totally. Totally. Well, Neil, this has been a fantastic talk. I am so thankful I got to pick your brain for a while here and, you know, get some of your wisdom as, as you've been able to lead teams and and level people up over the years. So again, thank you for the time and I will let you have the final word. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated the opportunity to come on. I think we said we might even have to make this regular. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today on the Product Design Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure and go follow our guests. Let them know they did a great job and you learned a lot. Um, More to come in the following weeks as we bring on new guests. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will get these podcasts uh, and learn a ton about the product design community. Excited to see you next time. Thanks.